0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.
1: Good morning and welcome to episode number 97 of Go To Grandma. I'm your host and Go To Grandma, Kathy Buckworth, and this show is airing originally on Zoomer Radio on June 17th, 2023. Today we are getting the royal treatment. Pinkies up, everyone, as we start our show off with the majestic and self-titled Queen of Fibre, home economist Marilyn Smith. Marilyn has been throwing legendary tea parties for years, and today she is going to share her tips and tricks for the perfect little grandkid and grandparent tea party for you to host this summer. Need a book that will get you into the mood for feeling royal? No, it's not the book by that red-headed guy who moved to California, but an even better fictional book called Coronation Year, written by the author of The Gown, Canadian literary superstar Jennifer Robson. This book doesn't cover the recent coronation of Charles. Rather, it takes place during the coronation of his mother, Queen Elizabeth II, in 1953. This coronation serves as a backdrop as to what life in England was really like in those post-war years, with the weaving of storylines and multidimensional characters all anchored by the Blue Lion Inn. You'll want to hear about the research Jennifer did and her thoughts on the impact of the royal family then and now. Today we also continue our study of financial elder abuse with our Take 5 with RBC segment as we dig deeper into this disturbing trend. While we are all getting educated on how to avoid a scam from professional cons, it turns out we need to be watching out for close family and friends as well. We have some expert advice on what to look out for. Get your tea, I'll grab my coffee, and we'll meet up here with our egg and cucumber sandwiches in a minute as Marilyn Smith lays a grand table for our Grand Hatter Tea Party next. I'm Kathy Buckworth, and you're listening to Go To Grandma. Marilyn Smith is the only professional home economist and food writer in Canada that is also an alumnus of the Second City Comedy Troupe, making her a popular TV and media food personality and the self-proclaimed funniest professional home economist in the world. Good morning, Marilyn Smith. Thanks for coming back on the show. I'm thrilled to be back with one of my best buddies. And I'm thrilled that you're on the show. You're the queen of fiber. I know that. You even have a picture, you know, of you and your (laughs) regalia. But besides being the queen of fiber, I know you to be also someone who uses good china maybe every day.
2: Every single day. I have a huge collection that was given to me by my mom some from my mother-in-law, my grandma, my fairy godmother, and I honor them every day by using a good, uh, like a different teacup every single day.
1: And you post about it. I love it. I love seeing all the different china patterns that you have. What I also love is I know that you throw, I'm mean, going to use the word legendary, but great <laughs> tea parties for your friends. So tell me, how did that start and why are you doing that? Well, I've always loved the tradition
2: of sitting down with a cup of tea and having a conversation. And my grandma, when I was in my teens, and now looking back, I think it's because my mom couldn't stand me, so she'd send me to my grandma, (laughs) and then I would go and she would have crumpets and tea, and I would tell her all of my sob stories, and she would listen. It was wonderful. You know, I would do that weekly. And so as I got older and, you know, all grown up, I decided, you know, I really like this this conversation because it's very slow when you're having tea you know you don't have to worry about finishing dinner or whatever there's sort of a lingering about it and so I started doing them casually and then when I got my own house about 30 some odd years ago I started actually throwing tea parties for four and six and eight and 20 and 36 (laughs) and yeah it's gotten a little crazy but it's a wonderful way to celebrate or just have a wonderful conversation
1: and everyone gets dressed up
2: I assume Yes. I didn't originally, but when I started throwing tea parties, people started, you know, wearing hats. And once everybody came with hats and gloves and I felt so underdressed. So I had to go, I have a hat collection. So, and of course I do anyway. (laughs) Yes, of course you do. (laughs) I have a tickle trunk. Come off it. Anyway. So yeah, so I started dressing up too. And in all of my other tea parties, you know, going forward from then, which was probably about 20 years ago, people get dressed up and it's really fun. I mean, I actually have a tea dress, which is a looser, kind of a flowy kind of a dress that I like to wear, too.
1: (laughs) I love it. And, of course, having tea parties is something that, you know, little kids do all the time. So what better person to speak to about if I wanted to throw, I have a granddaughter. I think you know this. I know. And she's a little baby. But my grandsons, I'm sure, would appreciate a tea party as well. So what advice would you have for a grandparent who wants to sort of put together a fun, maybe nutritious tea party for their grandkids?
2: That's interesting that you said, you know, your grandson and your, your grandsons mm-hmm. and your granddaughter, because originally, back when tea started, uh, women kind of socialized on their own. But the classic afternoon tea party, you could invite male, uh, men and women to your home. So, you know, we can keep that tradition going from the 1800s. So anyway, you start off with Mother Goose Tea. So Mother Goose Tea is what my grandma gave me when I was really little. It's just a little tiny bit of tea with a whole lot of warm milk and a little bit of sweetener, so honey or sugar or whatever, and I have demitasses, which are tiny teacups. They're not toy ones, they're actually for they're actually for coffee, but I use them uh, as a little teacup for uh, when I have neighborhood kids over. There's a little boy across the street and Owen has come over to my house for tea in the backyard. So I gave him a demitasse. I'm gonna keep these for when I have grandchildren. And then the next thing is like little sandwiches, uh, you know, the little crustless ones, picking something that they would eat. Don't make anything weird. I mean, there's so many crazy teas you can have now. <laughs> (laughs) you know there's one that has like beef tartare in it you know you're not going to be giving that to your grandchildren but you know an egg salad or cheese or something that they're going to love maybe throw in a cucumber and then we go to the scones and there's a fabulous recipe on my website um, if you want to google that it it, it is crazy there's whipping cream in it and then you go to the treats so but it's just little nibblies and I think that's why it's so conducive to kids is that it's not an overwhelming amount of food it's just these kind of little nibbles.
1: Yeah and I think kids, I agree with you, they enjoy that. It's like when my kids were young and I had all four of them to feed, we'd often do like a buffet or little taster plates almost, right? And that would get them into trying the food and really choosing the quantity that that they wanted of each of them.
2: I love that idea, but that that is exactly why I think it's so great for little kids, and you know, I have tiered uh, plates, like a tiered, um, there's three layers, and I put the sandwiches on top, the scones in the middle, and the treats on the bottom, and then, you know, you get to choose what you want, and I actually love that as an adult, but I mean, as a little kid, I think it's kind of magical. When when Owen came over, he was like, what? We're having this? So, there is a magicness about it, and I love teaching the manners, and getting dressed up with your grandchildren, or with your little with anybody that has a little kid Uh, it's it's just fun like putting on your party dress you know I I think it gives you a different
1: a different feeling as you're eating yeah and i was just going to actually address that with you the manners part of it Um, I'm sure that your friends all have lovely manners when they come over (laughs) for tea and yeah there are some things I think basics we can pass on to our grandkids without sort of the pressure of that big family Thanksgiving dinner or something just like you know a napkin on your knee.
2: That's a great one. And and the only real etiquette for for tea is that you don't load your plate up. Mm. You just take one thing at a time. But when it comes to scones, you don't cut it in half with your knife, smear it with butter or Devonshire cream and then jam. You break off little bits. And so you break off Ah. like a mouthful, put a little bit of butter or Devonshire cream, which is my favorite, a little bit of your favorite jam, marmalade being mine. um, And then you just pop it into your mouth. So there's this little, you know, once again, they're little, they're little kids. So they might be eating like that anyway. And they might be (laughs) knowing that they're, you know, way ahead of the tea etiquette rule book. But anyway, um, when my husband had tea with me, I was like, no, don't cut it in half. Funny, Are you a madman?
1: That's funny. And also, yeah, my two-year-old grandson can't. He kind of eats like that. He pulls off pieces and jams it into his mouth all at once. So we're working there on the go. one piece at a time. But he's definitely he's definitely got the tea scone manners going already. And I guess another thing we could do is actually make some of those sandwiches and treats with them beforehand.
2: Yeah, I've always found that. Um, I have a son, he's 33 years old now, um, and uh, he'd always talk to me in the kitchen, like he would share stuff he'd never tell me anywhere else, even when he was little. But there's the theory that I've always had, if they cook it, they will eat it. And so being part of the, even the planning of the tea party is fun. So you can plan what you're going to make together, and then you make it together, and then you have it together. So it's, it's building on these relationships. And, you know, it's a tradition that I really like. I mean, it really connects me to my roots which are English Irish Scots so you know you could make the foods that would connect you to your roots whatever those are.
1: Yeah and mine are English and actually during lockdown my then 22 year old kid threw me a Bridgerton tea party which was great fun and we wore hats and everything so I'm in. Thank you so much for this Marilyn. (laughs) I really appreciate it. Of course we can go to MarilynSmith.com for all of your recipes and great cookbooks and advice and follow you on Instagram. Thanks again my friend for being on the show. Thanks for asking. Jennifer Robson is the USA Today and number one Globe and Mail bestselling author of seven novels, among them Somewhere in France and The Gown. She holds a doctorate in British Economic and Social History from St. Anthony's College, University of Oxford, where she was a Commonwealth scholar and an SSHRC doctoral fellow. She lives in Toronto with her husband and children. Good morning, Jennifer Robson. It's so nice to see you in studio today. Well, thank you for having me. Of course, I'm holding your book. I loved your book. I love all your books. We've talked before. And I really want to get into this one, Coronation Year. Why set it during the 1953 Coronation? What was it about that that got you?
3: I always kind of want to know what happens to my characters and the world they live in after I finish a book. So this is now the fourth book I've written in and around the period of of World War II. And I had last... uh, uh, visited London, as it were, in 1947 for the the, the Princess Elizabeth's wedding uh, at the end of November. In in my book, The Gown, and it was a period that it was a really tough time in Britain. Uh, you know, wartime austerity was was still in full force, and people were were having a real. Uh, a, a really difficult time looking ahead to the future with hope, and so when I landed on the idea of of uh, taking on uh, the the coronation as a as a backdrop uh, to a novel, I wanted to know what was the mood like then? What was what was the prevailing mood in 1953? Were people feeling more hopeful? And to my relief, since I you know I think after the pandemic, I wanted to write a book that was rather more hopeful, uh, and and so I discovered that people were very optimistic for the future. There was this notion that a new Elizabethan age was beginning, which didn't really happen in the end, but it certainly uh, propelled people along in this wave of, of kind of joyful optimism in 1953. And that's what I wanted as the backdrop. Um, and then my starting point was to wonder... If the, the processional uh, route uh, that the Queen took from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Abbey, if just standing in the street and watching her go by in the great gold coach, you know, and she's, she's this almost unearthly figure, if that moment could have more than just a passing importance in somebody's life, could it possibly change your life? And it's from there that I, I got the idea to uh, set the book in a in a little hotel that's been struggling, uh, and and that is fortunately on the processional route uh, for the coronation, and that gives uh, the hotel's proprietor, my my central character Edie, a chance to rescue her little hotel that has never been famous. It's never been particularly noteworthy. No one really uh, uh, knows of it beyond their regulars. And it's been lurching from crisis to crisis over the centuries. But here is this golden opportunity. And it gave me a chance to talk about ordinary people who are caught up in the excitement and hope uh, of that time.
1: And it's funny because I understand that people are looking for the Blue Lion in in real life now. Yes, (laughs) yes. I've
3: tried to be very transparent and say you will not find the Blue Lion. (laughs) If you go to that exact spot, you will find a lovely, very historic pub called the Sherlock Holmes. It's definitely worth a visit. And the building's exterior looks somewhat different. Uh, I actually had a friend of mine here in Toronto, um, an architect and a fine artist called Charisma Panchapakeson, to draw the blue lion as the two of us imagined it, as opposed to what it what the building actually looks like. So I apologize if anyone
1: <laughs> makes goes <the> trip <laughs> <laughs> and
3: and is is confounded when they can't find it. I suspect the landlords at, at the the Sherlock Holmes are probably wondering what the heck is this place that people keep asking us about.
1: So funny. And obviously, this book came out sort of fortuitously, right as the other coronation. You know that coronation, that little thing that yeah, happened. Yeah, just little thing. What was it back in May? <laughs> was it? And so it happened around the same time the book came out, so it sparked obviously a lot of interest in some of the contrast between yeah. now and 1953. What were some of those main contrasts that you sort of noted?
3: I think it was just the scale uh, of, of the entire kind of uh, weekend of festivities. The Queen's coronation in 1953 was a, a truly global event. And it was conceived as a, a kind of a, a showpiece event for the resurgence of Britain uh, and its recovery from from the Second World War. And so, you know, relatively speaking, it, it, you know, it's hard to adjust pound for pound mm-hmm. with, with inflation, but it, they, a lot of money was spent. Uh, many, many months were spent preparing for it, and it was inescapable. Uh, you know, you could not live in Britain at that time and not be really bombarded with news of the coronation every day. Uh, by contrast, the coronation back in May for the king was much more... Um, I would say it, it was it was driven by economic considerations mm-hmm. also by environmental considerations that you know the king just didn't want to you know waste uh money and uh materials you know that would otherwise uh, you know, just the idea of you know putting up uh, banners all along the streets that that didn't happen because what are they going to do with them afterwards? And for you know, you see things like the procession was much shorter. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ceremony itself was was ra- not as short as a lot of people are predicting, but still nonetheless rather constrained. They had one quarter the number of attendees. They they didn't transform the interior of Westminster Abbey as they'd done with the Queen's coronation. They managed to stuff you know. Uh, more than 8,000 people into the Abbey, which... Even when it's filled with, say, twelve hundred, it's very full. So what they'd done is they constructed these very steeply banked hmm. uh, seats, uh, stadium seating, uh, which you know I just think it's kind of a miracle that nobody kind of got up partway through and then fell down to, to the that Abbey would have floor. Been a story. Um, <laughs> but what was interesting about this coronation is, is how much did remain, uh, be, and and that goes to to the historic nature of the ceremony. It it it's earliest incarnation, you have to go back a thousand years. And the central elements of the coronation have remained largely unchanged. And so uh, you know, just the 70 years in between the Queen's coronation and then King Charles's is really just a blip in time. And so everything that I would have been expecting to see that was central to a coronation did happen. And I thought it was done very beautifully. Um, I mean, it's hard to do things wrong when you're dealing with Westminster Abbey, uh, the historic music, the kind of the age old, you know, words that have been. You know, and the finery
1: uh, are surrounding it. The finery. I
3: mean, that, you yeah. know, when you have, uh, you know, the, the crown jewels, very conservative estimate would put it at something in excess of a billion pounds in terms of their value. It's hard to make anything look cheap when you're when you're dealing with Seriously. that kind of, yeah, and 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 just the historic weight of it. Uh, and I thought, you know, that the the music especially was was very very beautiful. So it was, you know, it, everything was as I expected it. And there were some moments that I found unexpectedly touching, such as you know the Prince of Wales kneeling before his father and.
1: Absolutely, yeah, that, was, that was quite lovely. And I can't let you leave in our last little bit of time here. I can't let you leave without saying, are you working on another book? I hope so.
3: I am. I am. It's And I'm still a little cagey about it because I haven't really dug in to talk with my editor and agent about it. But I'm looking to, you know, my book before Coronation Year was Our Darkest Night that was set <laughs> in Italy, propelled by my connections with my husband's family. And I'm going back to Italy for this next one, but it'll be nice. set in Rome.
1: Nice place for research. I've been talking with Jennifer Robson and we've been looking at her new novel, Coronation Year, which is hitting all the best-selling lists right now. It's a wonderful book. Thank you so much for coming in today, Jennifer. Thank you, Kathy. Elaine Blades is a senior manager for the Professional Practice Group at RBC Royal Trust. She is the principal resource for technical and legal expertise for trust and estate matters. Elaine serves on the board and as chair of the Education Committee for the Canadian branch of the Society of Trust and Estate Practitioners, is a frequent writer and presenter on estate and trust topics. Her articles and blogs can be found at advisor.ca, allaboutestates.ca, and on LinkedIn. She is also a soon-to-be grandmother. Hello again, Elaine. Thanks for coming back for part two of our interview about elder financial abuse. Thank you, Kathy. So the sad fact is that our elder population does experience abuse in many forms, and one of them being financial. So from your experience, what should people be aware of to help protect themselves from financial abuse?
0: Well, thanks again for the opportunity to comment on this important issue. While elder financial abuse can and often is experienced while a person is still capable, not surprisingly, the risk of such abuse increases greatly in the event of the loss or diminished capacity. So in addition to the advice that, you know, we've all heard about how to protect ourselves from con artists and how to avoid various scams, one of the best ways to protect yourself from financial abuse is to be proactive and take steps to ensure you'll be protected in the event of future mental incapacity. The best way to so protect yourself is by preparing a continuing power of attorney for property, sometimes um, we'll refer to this as POA, in which you appoint a reliable and trustworthy attorney. So when making this important document and deciding who to appoint as your attorney, you should understand the powers and authority you are granting to your attorney and also the duties that you're imposing on them. The document is powerful, essentially enabling your attorney to manage and deal with your property as you could if you were capable. That being said, there are restrictions because your attorney has an overriding duty to always act in the best interest of the incapable person. They are, um, according to our legislation, they're supposed to consult with supportive family and friends to keep accounts of all transactions. Unfortunately, not all attorneys abide by these rules and all too frequently the power is abused. In Ontario, we actually set out the test for who has capacity to give a continuing power of attorney for property in the governing legislation, the Substitute Decisions Act. And there's two elements of the test that actually relate to this potential for misuse or abuse. One of them is you should know that unless your attorney manages your property prudently, the value may decline, and understand there is a possibility that your attorney could misuse their authority.
1: It is sobering to think about how much responsibility and authority the person you appoint as your attorney for property has over your financial affairs. What are some of the things you should consider when naming someone?
0: Well, you definitely want to appoint someone who is honest, trustworthy, and dedicated to acting in your best interest at all times. Other considerations include the time and inclination to act. Remember, they may be taking on a role that can last for years, live nearby, or at least in the same legal jurisdiction as you, and hopefully have the sense to know what they don't know and when to seek professional assistance. When you name an individual, your choices are naming an individual or a trust company, such as RBC Royal Trust, make sure that you name an alternate to act in the event the first name individual is unable or unwilling to act. You may also wish to consider naming co-attorneys, meaning they would act at the same time. That way there are two or more people who were there to act in your best interest. Naming co-attorneys to act jointly can definitely provide some additional checks and balances, Keep in mind, however, the importance of naming co-attorneys who can get along and are likely to agree. They may be called upon to make many decisions, and you don't want decisions to drag on to, to deadlock. So if you are thinking of naming co-attorneys, your children perhaps, you need to be realistic about the likelihood of them being able to work together and in your best interest. And I'll just add... It's important to choose the right executor as well. But remember, when we're talking about an attorney for property, you're still alive to experience the consequences. So this is really important.
1: If you could give our listeners one final tip on how to help themselves and their loved ones avoid being a victim of elder financial abuse, what would that be?
0: Well, elder abuse is unfortunately on the rise. And I'm personally grateful to see the topic receiving an increasing amount of attention. That being said, we always seem to focus on what I would bill as stranger danger. You know, make sure you don't click on a link from an unknown email sender or don't provide personal information over the phone, etc., While such tips are very important, the sad truth is that a significant portion of elder financial abuse is committed by our loved ones. And a significant portion of that abuse is committed by the person appointed as the attorney for property. So my final tip is really make sure you're aware, prepare this document. We know the majority of Canadians have not, and really give serious consideration to who it is that, which is why it's important to ensure you understand the mechanics of this important document and seek professional advice as required.
1: Thanks again so much, Elaine. And if we want more information, of course, we can go to RBC Royal Trust at rbc.com slash royal trust. Thank you. I can never wear beige because no one will know who I am. Queen Elizabeth II. I think we should all get rid of our beige. Throw on the bright colors, put some wildflowers in a vase, and bring out your best china just like Marilyn does. Thanks to her and to Jennifer for giving us the royal treatment this morning. Next week on Go To Grandma, I'm excited to have author and former host of TVO's Saturday Night at the Movies, Tom Ernst, on the program to give us a review of his first book, The Wild Boy of Wabamick. I might ask him if he sees a movie version of this raw and touching memoir about growing up in rural Ontario with an abusive father. I can't wait to talk to him. I couldn't put the book down. And then we're going to help you to hopefully get some money on the books as real estate broker Lisa Bednarski comes back on the show to tell us how to improve the value of our homes, whether we are thinking of selling in the next few weeks or in the next few years. And on our Take 5 with RBC interview, we learn about Nomi, that's N-O-M-I, an AI-powered digital money management platform that provides tailored insights and simplified savings for RBC clients very cool stuff. Thanks again for dropping in, either as we air the show on a Saturday morning or via our podcast, which you can find anywhere you find podcasts at any time. I'm Kathy Buckworth, your go-to grandma. Enjoy your grand journey.
0: Share your thoughts on this show with us. You can find Kathy on Instagram, at Kathy Buckworth, or email her, kathy at kathybuckworth.com.